I'm so amazed that you're an eighth grade teacher. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. That's a really, really important age. Really it's, important age. Yeah, they're kind of a they're like bags of hormones and yeah. just emotions. But they probably have stories that. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. I could talk for days on that. <laughs> Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool or a glass of tasty beer and join us each week as we discuss all the topics you were told not to discuss in polite company. My name is Jose. My name is Christina. And this week I will be joined by the hilarious and faith-filled Jeannie Gaffigan, a producer, writer, actress, mom, and wife, the Jim Gaffigan. Uh, it's quite the whirlwind conversation, so this will be a two-part episode. So be sure to come back next week for part two. But first, hey, you're joining us again, my wife, Christina here. Yeah, happy to fill in. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Um, so what are we drinking? What do we have? Well, you, my dear, picked out a wonderful variety box on the Sierra Nevada. I have Wonderland. Wonderland? Wonderland. Wonderland. <laughs> I think you're stressing the A too much. Wonderland. Yeah. <laughs> Nectarine Ale. Let's see. It's pretty good. I'm going to take a swig. Yeah, while you take a swig of them... Uh... That nectarine drink. I'm drinking the Torpedo. Oh, my goodness. Torpedo Extra IPA. See, you're in Nevada. It's really good. Family-owned and operated mm. and apparently argued over. Argued over? That's <laughs> what it says on the bottle. Interesting. Yeah. They're out of uh, Chico, California, in Mills River, North Carolina. Huh. North Carolina, the greater of the Carolinas. I've never been to South Carolina, so. Well, I did basic training South Carolina, so. How'd that work out? Uh, great. Yeah. I mean, you know, I fulfilled my duty. You did. I'm not so sure I would ever want to go to South Carolina. I think the only good thing to come out of South Carolina, no offense, uh, is Stephen Colbert. Oh my God. They have the most amazing, beautiful sunsets that I've ever seen in my life. And we live in California. Mm-hmm. Okay? Where we've got beaches. I know. And sand. And the sun sets in the west, and mm -hmm. I have never seen such beautiful sunsets before as South Carolina. So I apologize to all of you who are from South Carolina. I'm sure it's great. It's great over there. They have, oh. they have Lindsey Graham. Not so great. But anyway, thank you, North Carolina, the greater of the Carolinas, for participating in the creation of Sierra Nevada. It's delicious. For the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this segment of our show, Jose and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about for two minutes, though we tend to be chatterboxes, so that isn't a strict time limit. This week, Jose will discuss... Yeah, so this week I will be, uh, as we've discussed, I'll be talking to the wonderful Jeannie Gaffigan. She is wonderful. She really is. So because today... I'm talking to Jeannie Gaffigan. I thought it would be fun 
uh, to take a minute and talk about humor in the Bible. Don't worry, you know God has a sense of humor. Yeah. So just to preface this Fred talk here, uh, much of this comes from reading Father James Martin's book, Between Heaven and Mirth. Mm. So this is not my own genius. This is not my own insight. <laughs> just You've been reading that book for a while, yeah. Well, I finished that book a long time ago. Oh, you did? Okay. But biblical scholars, according to his book, uh, note that Jesus would have actually been quite funny to the people listening to his parables, to his stories, to his, you know, riddles or questions. We, modern readers, we read it and we don't think it's that funny. Part of it is because humor is like time bound, it's cultural bound. Mm, yeah. That was 2,000 years ago. So yeah. some of the humor doesn't really resonate with us. But humor is in our DNA. True. I mean, it, it's crafted into our DNA. He created us, mm -hmm. right? It's fathomable right. that he's funny. Oh, for absolutely. <laughs> that's 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 the whole point. He, right. he is funny. Yeah. It's just a matter of modern readers sometimes miss the joke. Yes. It's sort of like if you go back and you watch The Three Stooges. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, yeah, it's funny. And some people, like myself, are like, I don't get it. It's not my cup of tea. Yeah. The other aspect is that we, the readers, approach the Bible with so much seriousness and reverence mm -hmm. that we read these things that are supposed to be funny or witty. Mm -hmm. We read them with just the solemn yes. tone of voice. Solemn is the word I was thinking of. For sure. And so because we're doing that, we just butcher the joke. Mm-hmm. Right, it's like if you were to read a comedian's joke with this, you know, a very straight, serious tone, mm -hmm. the joke would fall flat. But there's also another reason why we sometimes will read the book, the Bible, so seriously. It's because it ends. The Gospels end with Jesus's passion, death, and resurrection. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like there's tragic. no joking about. There's that. no joking in there. Yeah. So that will sometimes overshadow the, the levity. Yeah. That kind of precedes that but we have to remember that jesus was a man he walked this earth he had friends he lived with his disciples he walked with them ate with them i'm sure he told stories jokes around the campfire well okay uh, people don't like to think of our lord and savior as being human in the way where the man had to eat mm -hmm. he had to sleep he had to poop yep i'm sure he farted vomited Vomited. I mean, you name it. Like yeah. so, but I think in most people's minds, they they just can't picture uh, Jesus doing any of that. Right. And so it kind of dehumanizes him in a way. Right. And in, and in doing that, dehumanizes us as well, actually. Yeah. So Jesus is very charismatic. He's very appealing to people, and part of that is he's funny. So let's just look at a few examples. Take Jesus's admonition to stop being a hypocrite who points out the speck of wood in their brother's eye, mm. but doesn't notice the beam or the plank in their own eye. Right. Like that would have been funny. Yeah. Right. Because the twist there is you're pointing out this little tiny speck of wood. Meanwhile, you got a big old honking chunk of wood in your own eye. Right. Right. That's the twist. Mm -hmm. Or for example, think of Nathaniel. He's sitting under a fig tree and... Someone points out that, you know, Jesus is, you know, the Messiah. And Nathaniel's response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Jesus just, <laughs> instead of being like, do you want to be smoten? Yeah. I'm going to smite you? Right. You don't speak that way to me. Not that. I will smite you. No, instead he's like, now there's an Israelite 
without duplicity, mm. without guile. Mm. So our embrace of humor, of joy, it's a sign that we are in the presence of God. That's a sign that mm. we are residing in God's peace. Yeah. Right. Instead of being anxious or fearful. But it's also a great way to repel the enemy. Right. Uh-huh. The devil hates the sound of laughter. Mm. He hates happy, joyful people. Yeah. Right. As a Christian, we should be laughing and joyful and telling jokes, being humorous. Don't be a sourpuss, as Pope Francis has mm. warned. <laughs> well, I'm chuckles over here, so yeah. according to my family. <laughs> <laughs> All right, babe, what do you got? Today I'm going to talk about uh, the origin of roller derby. Mm-hmm. Something that uh, I was very passionate about for uh, a period in my life, and I've never been one to play sports, but roller derby was it for me. Mm -hmm. I've loved skating, you know, my whole life since I was a little girl and uh, got to kick some butt on the track. I wanted to talk about it uh, and and the origin Mm -hmm. of it, because not a lot of people know uh, how it got started and all that jazz. So I I don't have a lot of time, obviously, but I just wanted to kind of... um, on a few things with it so uh roller derby dates back to the 1920s yeah it's hard to imagine roller skates back Mm -hmm. in the 20s you know they're aluminum wheels and well have you seen their bicycles back then giant front wheel and tiny little back wheel yeah there's that (laughs) (laughs) yeah roller derby was originally used to describe roller skate races. In the late 1930s, Leo Seltzer, like the drink, uh, had a touring competition called Transcontinental Roller Derby, and it was marathon race skating. So, I mean, they would skate miles and miles, and that was on a race track. And then it it evolved into um, a more physical competition. and emphasizing the skater collisions and falls. Which is more fun. I guess, I mean, who doesn't want to see some women, you know, smacking each other around on the back there? Um, You can't smack, but, you know, maybe with your booty and your hips. Yeah. Yeah. I'll watch it. (laughs) You know, back in the 1930s, the late 1930s, when this was getting started, it was absolutely unheard of. For women to mm-hmm. have a full contact sport. Absolutely unheard of. Right. So this was the one sport that women were on an equal playing field as the men. Yeah. And it, it's been that. It's always been that throughout the decade. I think that's pretty cool. That is. Uh, it's a very physical and mental sport as well. There's lots of strategy involved. I'm not going to get into the, the inner workings of exactly... How it works because I'll be here all day. Okay, so the short and skinny of it is it's five on five. Mm-hmm. So you got two teams, five girls from one team, five on the opposing team. Uh, four of them are blockers, one's a jammer, mm-hmm. the jammers hang back a little bit, and that whistle blows, and it is the responsibility of those jammers to break through the pack. So it's both offense and defense at the same time. Yeah. So you've got your team trying to get you through the pack while the opposing team is trying to run you off the track. So you got to get past that pack. It's not until that next lap that you actually score. That's how that works there. In the 70s, there was a lot of drama on the track. It was almost like 
wrestling, you mm-hmm. know, professional wrestling. Lots of melodrama, lots of theatrics. And, I mean, there would just be thousands of people coming out to watch this stuff. So, and then it kind of went away for a while. And um, it kind of made a resurgence back in 2001. So there was a group of girls in Austin, Texas uh, that revived it. And um, they started the, we call it WIFTA for short, or WIFTA. Uh, That's Women's Flat Track Derby Association. And so now there's just hundreds of teams all over the country. Um, I think roller derby is in like 33 countries. Oh, wow. It is, I think it's an amazing sport because there's a little bit of drama. Mm -hmm. Uh, Full contact. Such a camaraderie, um, though, from the women. You know, this sport started in the late 1930s, and now it's involved, evolved to, um, you know, what it is today. And it, I'm, I'm just so glad that it survived, you know, through the decades. And like I said, the camaraderie, the sport, sportsmanship is just amazing. Like, we'll go out and kick each other's butts on the track. Right. And then, you know, later we're having beers with these women. Yeah. You know, like, we're best buds, so. I've been to, I've actually watched you play without knowing that it was you. Yeah. A long time ago. It's fun. Yeah. You watch these chicks out there and hip checking and knocking chicks over. and My roller derby name was Chrissy Creeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, the punny names for these women, uh, I mean, you got to give them credit for the stuff that they come up with. I mean, you know how there's Paps Ribbon. Paps Blue Ribbon. Blue Ribbon Bears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a gal named Paps Smear. Wow. <laughs> And wow. uh, Dixie Normus. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and just so many other really cool punny ones. But yeah, I'll never forget my Derby sisters. I mean, anything. Very cool. All right, everyone. So for this segment of our show, we are joined today by Jeannie Gaffigan, a funny woman of faith, a writer, actress, director, producer, philanthropist, and mom to five children. Six, if you count her Hot Pocket-obsessed husband, Jim Gaffigan. Hot Pocket! Thank you so much, Jeannie, for joining us on our humble little podcast. Jose, I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, it's Truly a blessing. I'm like a giddy that you're here. Uh, before we begin, let's break the ice. I have a few lightning round questions for you. Question one, who is your favorite comedian besides Jim? Marina Franklin. Ooh, okay. Before I move on, who is she? I don't know who she is. Uh, Marina is a um, female comedian, obviously, and she is a African-American comedian who is just a long time friend of mine from New York. And um, the first time we really became friends is she was working on the Jim Gaffigan show and she did pretty much like a silent bit. Like, I think she had a few lines, but she did this thing where she was walking a dog and, and uh, Jim was digging through a garbage can looking for something. And she just kind of did like reactions. to uh-huh. him. It was amazing. And, um, but I, I knew her comedy and I knew, like I kept, we had kind of offered her the part based on you know her sort of 
you know, funniness. She just really recently did a, a comedy special in called Single Black Female. And it was, uh, you know, she just does a lot of really funny things about, um, be, she's like, you know, I'm I'm trying to be woke, but, you know, I'm just, it's just so exhausting. <laughs> like, wait, now I can't wear Nikes? Like, she just does a lot of really great uh, topical, edgy mm-hmm. comedy. And um, I just really like her style. Very cool. different from Jim. Thank you. I'm going to have to check her out. All right. Question two. Guilty pleasure movie. Oh, Labyrinth. Question three. Book that you would recommend to someone to read. I think that everyone should read Pope Francis's Let Us Dream. And it's not just because I'm, you know, a crazy Catholic. It is like one of the most simple, beautiful messages. And it's written in response to the pandemic. So it's very current. Mm. And it's kind of giving us a uh, kind of an opportunity to do a kind of refreshing of our sort of way of life. It's super easy to read, and um, it's a beautiful book. I need to read that book. It's on my list. I, I love Austin Ivory as well. I have to tell you, it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, i got to read this book. It's like you get it, uh, and it's so clear and beautiful and you know, well done. It's really well done, and I just love it. Oh, it's on my list. Question four. Nickname. Luigi. Where does that come from? I cannot really remember exactly the first time that I was called Luigi, but um, I think it was the first time we went to Rome. You know, Jim is very silly. So he just started calling me Luigi. Like he he thought it was my Italian name. I don't know why. Probably because my my name is actually um, Jeannie Louise. And so I think he was just calling me maybe Jeannie Luigi, and then somehow it turned into Luigi. When I was a kid, my aunt had a dog named Luigi. So I think I told him about that. And I was like, I associate Luigi with the dog. Uh-huh. And we also had this always this joke where if one of us was mad at the other one, we were in the doghouse. So it kind of morphed together because I would be like, is Luigi in the doghouse? And then one of our first recorded albums was called Luigi's Doghouse that I produced. And so that's kind of like, and then also he, by the way, this year for Christmas, he gave me a necklace that says Luigi. Yeah. Wow. This is all like, this is a serious nickname. I'm Luigi. That's awesome. All right. Which one of the seven dwarves do you maybe associate with? Grumpy, 100%. <laughs> Why grumpy? You don't strike me as a grumpy person. I Well, I am. I'm super grumpy. And I'm like, you know, I think that probably I try to hide it. But like people in my close circle know that I'm grumpy. I am grumpy and Jim is dopey. <laughs> That's good. I mean, there has uh, to be. And the grumpy and dopey combo is great. Yeah. That's a good balance. It's good balance. I like that. Uh, final question. If you could ask God a question, what would it be? He is my husband getting in. Those are the people I want to bump into in heaven be like, Hey, remember me? <laughs> sure here? Yeah, Peter loves my stuff. That's the same question I'm sure my wife would ask. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, say, I didn't assume I was getting in. I just want to know if he's getting in. Yeah. If he's getting in, I'm probably getting in. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're a shoe in. If he's getting in, you're a shoe in. Yeah. Well, thank you for, yeah, let's, for breaking the ice. Um, so I just want to start 
from the beginning of, of your life? Like, where are you from originally? What was your life like growing up? What was your childhood like? Well, I am from Milwaukee, and both of my parents were from elsewhere. It's kind of funny. I didn't, I just thought of this now is when I moved to New York, I was sort of an outsider, right? Moving to New York, being from Milwaukee. Like you think it's like a joke. It's like, where are you from, Milwaukee? Um, and I'm like, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am from Milwaukee. But also since my parents were both from elsewhere, also when I was growing up in Milwaukee, I was kind of weird there too, right? Because I had a different, you know, I wasn't born and raised in Wisconsin, even though I was. But I wasn't like from a generation that was, right? So my mom was from a super conservative Catholic, Irish Catholic family um, from New York and then eventually Palm Beach, Florida and Naples, Florida. My mom's family were definitely immigrants, but Irish, you know, immigrants that came to New York and Ellis Island and then the next generation, you know, my mom's father was born in the United States. My father's parents were not born in the United States. They were born in Europe, in um, uh, Germany and Italy. And so my grandmother on my dad's side was Jewish. And the, her husband, my grandfather on my father's side, was a Lutheran. I'd say Lutheran, but I don't I just figured he was Lutheran because he was definitely not Catholic. And he was a anti-Nazi movement like leader. And so he was in big trouble with the Gestapo back in the 40s. And then he married a Jewish woman, which was like a big no-no. He and my grandmother were uh, heavily pursued by the Gestapo. And they wound up being separated in hiding. And one of the underground networks of um, hiding Jews and people who were the Nazis were after were an order of uh, Dominican priests, Catholic priests. So my grandmother was hidden in a uh, Dominican rectory, and she had two uh, small children. My grandfather would sneak in and visit her occasionally. So eventually she became pregnant with her third child. And the priests were like, because she was like sort of posing as like a housekeeper, a guard, you know, I mean, people in the neighborhood knew that they, the priest, there was a woman around cleaning or whatever. And the priests were like, look, you're pregnant. You can't, you know, we gotta, like, they don't. So anyway, they arranged for her to get to like Paris and get to um, the, meet my grandfather and get to the, um, to New York. So in New York, after they had wound up getting out of Nazi Germany, my father was born in New York and he is, his name is Dominic because of the Dominican priests. And so when they converted to Catholicism then, so that's a really cool story there. But very important in my kind of background story is that my uh, parents met at uh, Marquette University, um, which is a Jesuit university, which is very, you know, I went to Marquette too. So it's kind of like, and it's, which is in Milwaukee, right? That's how Milwaukee became a thing. It's really influenced my Catholicism, like my Jesuit education, and also my parents being educated um, in Jesuit education. And my um, grandfather was actually a professor at Marquette University. My the one I, uh, who was the, the writer who uh, wrote against the Nazis. And even more significant is that my mother's parents were wildly against the marriage of my father and my mother because he had Jewish blood. So that was a little, you know, I mean, now I identify it as racism, 
you know, I, I think eventually they came around, but when I now as an adult, when I look back at some of the, you know, sort of mindset of that time and what the world that my mother left, which was a very sort of lily white community, I realized that, you know, it was a, it was a racist situation. Hearing about your parents and, and their background and kind of the religious theme there, which one of your parents, both of them, how did they impart their faith to you, your, your Catholic faith? My wife's really Catholic. She's like a Shiite Catholic. Very differently. My mother was really an over-the-top spiritualist. Like, my mother had, like, gigantic statues of, like, she had a huge altar of the Virgin Mary in her living room, which was very not, like, normal. Most people, unless they were in a very, uh, like, their parents were, like, straight from, like, a different country, right? They would have, like, statues and be like, oh, okay, that's an ethnic thing, you know? But in my, my mom was just like, we just have all the saints around us, and the Mother Mary is the, you know, she was very, very over the top. And my father was very quiet about it, but still obviously didn't say you can't have the Virgin Mary in the living room. And so my mother was always singing, you know, uh, you know, prayers, and she was always talking about God and angels and, you know, doing this Michael the Archangel prayer, like, every day before we went to school. And if we were like, you know, someone's being mean to me, she would say a quote from, you know, let no weapon formed against thee prosper. Like, she'd always have these moments of wisdom. My father, um, who was a super intellectual, like, much more quiet and kind of in a in a very Jewish way, right? He has that very like secular Jewish way about him where he's very intellectual about everything. But he played the banjo at the Newman Center and he always sang in the choir at Jesu Church. He loved the music and he wrote uh, songs about the Holy Spirit and you know, it was in a folk song kind of way. So we had a very eclectic upbringing. I'm the oldest of nine children. Wow, so nine kids. That's yeah, amazing. So, so everyone's like, oh my gosh, you have five kids. I'm like, that's nothing. Yeah. You ever watch Wayne's World? I always think of that moment in Wayne's World, Milwaukee. Actually, it's pronounced Milwaukee, which is Algonquin for the good land. I was not aware of that. And then <laughs> they go through the explanation of, I guess, the native origins of that word, the etymology of Milwaukee. Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. The French missionaries and explorers were coming here as early as the late 1600s to trade with the Native Americans. But, um, sorry, tangent. No, no, I have to look that up, though, because I love Wayne's World. I haven't thought about that in years. It's, yeah, it's, that's how my brain works. But what was your childhood like? What, what did you do as a kid growing up in Milwaukee? Growing up in Milwaukee was really cool because we were right on the edge of the city. Um, so, you know, Milwaukee is a very segregated city. So it's like the white people live over here and the black people live over here. But where I lived was right, like there was downtown and then we were right around UW-Milwaukee. So if anyone is listening to this is from Milwaukee, they're going to know exactly where I live from the east side of Milwaukee. We had this great neighborhood where there was just tons and tons of kids. And we didn't have these things where we would have to arrange play dates and stuff like that. You know what I mean? You just went out and... We climbed trees and we had, so we were in the city, but we were also kind of in the, you know, had a yard and, you know, we'd run around the neighborhood and play games. And there was a group of teenagers and we'd like prank them and there were little kids and there were all these like different generations of kids. 
Um, and it was a really wonderful um, experience growing up. And it was also somewhat diverse in that neighborhood. And we also lived in between two different Catholic parishes, St. Peter and Paul, which was more of the blue collar Catholics, and St. Robert's, which was more of the like affluent conservative yeah, Catholics. And so when you have a big family and everyone has all these activities and everything, or you were late, it would decide which mass you went to. And so when I was a kid, I always wanted to go to the um, St. Robert's Mass because I liked the clothes better, right? I was like, oh, I want to see all what everyone's wearing, you know? I didn't really get that, like, you know, it was nicer, right? And now I was like, wow, St. Peter and Paul was really where it was happening. I mean, I remember being like, Dad, can't we be Republicans like the rich people? You know, when I was a kid, I didn't understand what was going on. And then also, I did not go to Catholic school, even though um, both of those parishes had schools. I went to this school in inner city Milwaukee that was 60% African-American. And it, you, it was called, it's, it still is called Rufus King High School. You should Google it and see like what the, the racial makeup was. It was a utopia. We were really mixed at that school. And for sure, there was like the black social ladder and the white social ladder, definitely. But at a certain point, you had this sort of understanding where there was no like, this one's better than that one or whatever, unless you were, you know, a better athlete or a better student. I mean, it was like not about race, right? Or the, the construct of, what, of race. So I really was shocked when I went to college and I found out that, you know, racism was such a huge thing. I was shocked because I was in a bubble. You know, that's just uh, something that I continue to learn because I never want to offend anyone. But there were things that we said for a long time. You'll remember that people were saying African-American only, right? They were saying, oh, my African-American friend. And for me, it was like so weird to say that because I had never said that in my whole life, but I didn't want to offend anyone. So, but every time I said, oh, my African-American friend, I was like, who am I saying this for? You know, because I, I don't know if my yeah. black friends would be offended or they'd be like, you know, I fine with black, you know. So yeah. it, it always put me in kind of a weird situation, my very um, eclectic upbringing. No, I, I've had similar experiences here in my community growing up using those words. Like, is this the right one? I'm not sure. Sh- yeah. As I was looking into kind of your background, I was also struck that you were in Shakespeare festivals and you were in plays in theater. Cause you know, I, when I was in high school, I did four years of drama in theater. And so when I read that, I'm like, Oh, cool. There were, there was something there, a shared history. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, sure. Well, my father, getting back to my father and actually my mother too, but um, that goes back to Marquette were, they met in the theater at Marquette which was a very serious program. And there's a lot of people out of that program that are, you know, wound up being household names. Um, but my, my mother and father were very, you know, passionate about the theater and, uh, you know, met in the theater. And growing up, my father was the um, theater critic at our, our paper, the Milwaukee Journal. And so as a kid, and he also taught film at UW uh, Milwaukee, and uh, he was a film critic too. So as a kid, I got exposed to all this theater because that was like what we would do with dad. 
right? Like dad would be like, okay, tonight Jeannie's going to go to the theater with me. And I wound up going on my first trip out of Milwaukee but without my whole family was with my dad to the um, Stratford, Ontario Shakespeare Festival. And when I think about being like a nine-year-old, 10-year-old kid and what I was exposed to, it's very clear what why I wound up, you know, loving it so much. And then when I got to high school and I actually started studying Shakespeare, and then I remember in Dr. Stark's British Authors Honors class in my sophomore year, um, I just was so enamored with Shakespeare. I just thought it was so cool because we started to learn about like breaking down what it was. And then from an acting perspective, it's like, it's so current. Like everything about Shakespeare is so current. Like the same emotions, the same relationships, the same kind of power structure. Think of even obscure Shakespearean plays like Timon of Athens. It's like literally, it's like Mitch McConnell is in that play. It's it's unbelievable what you can do. And so as I got older, Shakespeare became a passion of mine. Essentially, um, when I, I actually started off at U of Madison because it was, Marquette University is a private, expensive college. And I was the first kid. And my, my financial aid was not as good as the financial aid that when you have another kid in college, you get better financial aid for your other kids. And so I was the first one. So I went to a, our state school, which was um, UW-Madison. And it's an excellent school, by the way. It's a, it's amazingly. All my professors were from Harvard and wonderful school. But I want to transfer into Marquette as a sophomore on a merit scholarship. So when I was at Marquette, I, I joined the theater uh, program. In Marquette, you have to minor in uh, philosophy or, or theology. And I remember that I did not have any credits from the state school because they had no theology classes. So I had to take a lot of classes. So I had like, I went to a school of communications, journalism, and performing arts. And then I minored in uh, theology. So essentially, when I got there, I was coming in as a kind of a newbie in the middle. I, I was a junior. So um, at the end of my sophomore year is when I got the scholarship. And so I was in a kind of really uh, established group of people. And although I did get a lot of stage experience there, there was one particular show that I was in, which was a Shakespearean production. I was already in the Scottish play at one point. And then the next year, I think was my senior year, and I had you know sort of the hopes of being an actor in this um, in Midsummer Night's Dream. I didn't get in, and so I wanted to join the crew and being the ASM on that show, assistant stage manager, which was something I hadn't done. But when you're uh, when you go to school for theater, you have to do the crews, right? If you don't get the, you have to be involved in the production. And it turned out to be one of the greatest experiences of my life because I was involved in every single aspect of that production and I understood every single role in the production. It was like so fascinating that I was like, I want to direct Shakespeare. That's what I want to do when I grow up. So my first job, I started to uh, take the director's MFA at Marquette. And my first job I was hired for was to direct the fall play at my high school as a visiting director. And so I chose to play Midsummer Night's Dream, which I had just ASM'd. I staged it in a modern times. And it was with these high school kids. And it was so great. It was such a great experience. 
Um, and then I was going back to uh, Marquette to uh, continue my master's. And then I got chosen to be an understudy in a equity theater, the Milwaukee Repertory Theater. And I worked under this director who was brilliant. And he did this Brian Creel play called Dancing at Lunasa, where there was like dialect coach and choreographers. And it just was this whole other world of like a big budget regional theater. And they had actors coming in from New York. And I was like, wow, I have got to blow this popsicle stick and go to New York because this is like, this is what I want to do. But one of the things that I remember that um, this director, Joe Henry, did was he really focused on these amazing themes that in this play, and I could go on and on about this, but that's another, put it on your reading list, it's called Dancing in Lunasa. And it's about these sisters who live in Ireland in a very conservative Catholic rigid uh community and their uncle jack who's a priest goes to africa to like convert the africans right he's uh, convert the savages right that was yeah. his goal and he gets malaria and has to come home but in within his like delirium you realize that he has become part of the african culture and that his passion has become this thing that is now very fearful to the very rigid oldest sister who's like, no, no, that's pagan. That's pagan, you know? But it's this like beautiful like religion. At the same time, in the mountains, there are still people who practice the Celtic religion, which is also a big no-no. So it's this like struggle between this rigid Catholic faith, the African culture and the Irish uh, Celtic culture and it just blew my mind. I was like, this is so, because you read it on the page and you're like, you know, you can take your art in a different way than you can with just doing it as an actor, right? Yeah. You have a vision of the whole production. So I got really, really amped about directing, even though I was, should have probably gone back to school and gotten my, my master's in uh, directing. I just moved to New York and was like, I want to just do this. Yeah, and then so you arrive in New York and then... I say you created, but I think maybe you would not agree with the word created. But you were part of maybe this four-person sketch comedy group called King Baby? No, I, I, I created it as a co-creator. I don't want to say okay. Gaffigan created it. I did create it. I was a founding member. What kind of um, sketches did you perform? And then as you were in this, did you prefer the acting, the writing, the directing, or just being part of all of that? Uh, just a little bit of background. So when I moved to New York, I was doing a lot of stuff, okay? I was doing, you know, let's go start humble. I was waitressing, okay? I was hooked up with a arts program because at that time, like, the government had cut all this funding for public schools. And so a lot of uh, arts organizations got together and would hire skilled artists from the community to come in for like an hourly rate and do um, workshops because like you didn't have art class anymore, right? But then you could have like a six week workshop with a visiting artist at the public schools. It was really great because I got to really learn the city, like go to the Bronx public schools, go just really see what the story was. Um, so I was doing that. My brother, Vincent, had graduated from Carnegie Mellon University, which if you're, you know, in acting, you know that they have like one of the finest, uh, you know, acting programs and MFA programs in, you know, the country. 
So he had hooked me up with a bunch of his friends that were living in New York and doing theater. And so I wanted getting together with them and becoming part of a grassroots theater company where it was all original plays. I didn't direct there. I was an actor in that. But I mean, it was like people who were got an MFAs in like stagecraft and art and directing and acting and playwriting. So I was in that and that was called Assembly. And then at the same time, I was ta- I was um, auditioning and I ended up teaching drama getting a tr- and reading at a Catholic school in my neighborhood. So what happened was, is that I um, was in improv classes and then out of improv classes, normally you meet a bunch of friends and you go and you do an improv group. So I started doing a lot of, you know, shows around New York, uh, improv shows, which led me to audition for like sketch groups. And I started doing sketch comedy and seeing a lot of comedy, not stand-up comedy that came later. So I saw this woman who was a little bit older than me, who was so polished and so funny doing a one woman show. And she had these these amazing comic monologues that were laugh out loud funny. But what was different about her, because at that time, a lot of the female performers were really talking about very, uh, I don't, I don't want to say edgy, but it was like sort of kind of filthy, right? Like very personal things about women that were not talked about, right? That was funny. And I was just kind of not into that, but that was the way it was. So this girl was rip-roaring funny and her whole thing was about her struggling relationship with God which in my opinion was the edgiest thing ever because it was like much cooler to be like yeah there is no God let me talk about you know my naked body or whatever so I waited for her after the show and I was like I have to say that I am blown away by your talent and you are so incredible and I was like nobody I was like a kid who didn't you know I didn't have any influence or anything like that and she was so kind to me. And we got each other's email addresses and we wound up like getting coffee together. And then we wound up writing a sketch together. And it turned out she was part of this uh, church that was non-denominational, like probably like evangelical, some kind of churches. And she was in this like young people's group, right? And so I was going to Catholic mass, like by myself with all these like 90-year-old Italian grandmas. And I never any like, friends to talk about God with, right? I had my theater company and there was mostly like atheists and this and that, which is no judgment, but I never had a peer group until this woman brought me to, I mean, I was very much like, I'm not joining your church, okay? But I started going to these like cool, like kind of like worship, you know, things with a bunch of Christians and met these really, really funny people. And so this woman's name is Susan Isaacs, and she wound up in introducing me to these two hilarious guys who were at this church as well, who she was like, I want to do a sketch with them and improv with these guys. One was Todd Wilkerson, who's the nephew of David Wilkerson, who's like this famous pastor who started Time Fair Church, and, and Tony Hill, which you might know as Buster from Arrested Development or, um, you know, the personal assistant on VP, which is like everyone knows this guy. So, but at the time we were all just kids in New York and Todd is also a working actor and Susan's also a working actor. So, but at the time we just started writing these sketches about, they weren't all like had, had God in them, but some of them were, you know, Susan is an amazing writer and she had this one called couples therapy where she shows up at this couples therapist alone. And he's like, so is your um, husband here? And she's like, 
well, it's not really my husband. He's like, boyfriend? She's like, well, not really. You wouldn't call it boyfriend. She's like, he's like, well, who are you here to have couples therapy with? And she's like, God, I'm here to have couples therapy with God. So he, the, the therapist is kind of like, okay, I, they're, they're, God is not here. And she's like, no, no, he's here. He's here. And she, he's like, okay, well, what kind of problems do you have with him? She's like, um, I always feel like I'm kind of just like talking to myself. You know, it's like, I feel like he wants me to do things that I don't want to do. Like he, she had this laundry list that is total classic, like what a woman would say about a man or a man would say about a woman. And then he was like, listen, I just have to break it to you. God is not real. And then God walks in, right? And he's like, oh, sorry, I'm late. And he sits down and he's like, okay. He's like, again, with the complaining, like, and it was just really good. And then later, as it goes to like act three, all of a sudden, like Jesus walks in. And he's like, hey, dad. And he's like, hey, hi, son. And then he's like, hey, Susan, how you doing? You know, and he's much sweeter. It was just so funny. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I just love this so much. And, you know, we did shows every Friday night in New York. And King Baby was the name of the group. I love that. That is hilarious. That's, That's the kind of content I'm looking for in my life right there. I love hearing your story, your life story here, because I don't know that many people of faith who are in theater. And like you, it's, you don't really come across too many. So I love hearing your story. Your story, at one point, intersects with a fellow named, trying to remember, James Gaffigan or something? He is Garrigan. Garrigan? Durgan? Something of that, in that realm. How did you two intersect how did where did you guys meet where did you guys become collaborators i want to just push my book for a second i wrote a book called when life is repairs about my experience with the brain tumor yes and my you know how it sort of deepened my faith and my my love of uh everything pretty much but i tell this story so i don't want to be redundant so i'm not going to you know give everything away but i i tell the actual meeting story and the courtship story in the book but for the purposes of answering your question, I have now at this point been living in the Little Italy area of, of New York City. Now it's called Nolita. It's a beautiful area and it's right near Chinatown and there's Little Italy and then there's this whole block on Mott Street between Houston and Prince that is St. Patrick's Old Cathedral, which was the first cathedral in New York. And the school which is now closed, but it was an orphanage where St. Elizabeth Ann Seton started her orphanage. And it's a a few blocks away from where the Catholic worker, where Dorothy Day uh, did her thing. So we're talking like history here. I'm getting this name right. It has a a wall around it. This church is a big red brick wall. If you Google search it, you'll see it. It's just incredible because they had a wall because people like hated Catholics, right? So anyway, so Jim lives on the same block. So for like five years, we are passing each other on the street. So it's like that person you pass on the street, you never talk to, but you nod because you're like, okay, now it's just awkward not to nod. So anyway, one time I was doing a uh, sketch or a improv or something in, and this is because King Baby was before Jim, right? That was way back in the day. So I was at like Stamp New York doing a festival where there was like agents there or something, you know, he's like, oh, there's going to be agents there. So I go and I'm doing the sketch and I'm signed up for like whatever, the 9.45 p.m. slot. And this comedian walks in 
it was a sketch night, right? It wasn't a stand-up night. And he, like, talks to the guy who's running the MC. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you go on, go on. And I, and just takes the, the slot that we have. And I'm like, who's this guy? What, how did he just walk in, right? Because, you know, Jim's not on TV or anything like that. So, essentially, he gets up and does this amazing bit about the, this manatee. And it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, oh, my God, that is the guy who lives on my block. So then the next time I saw him, I said, I saw you in at Stand Up New York, because that's way on the Upper West Side, like a 25, 30-minute subway ride away from where I live. It's not close. And then also someone in my group was like, yeah, he's a really great comedian. Like, he's, like, known stand-up comedian in New York. And he was really funny. So anyway, I had a chat with him about that. And then uh, several times we ran into each other, right? And we have like a couple exchanges like, oh, how are you? Whatever. And then one day I was directing Midsummer Night Stream because at this point I had started a theater company in my neighborhood with these really wild eighth graders at St. Patrick's School. They're really, I mean, these kids were like very, uh, you know, mom and dad weren't home after school. You know what I mean? They were on the street. They were doing their thing. They were not disciplined, <laughs> you know, but it was great because they had the perfect energy for Shakespeare, right? Remember I talking about high school? These kids were like full of life and full of hormones. And so I would do these productions with these kids and I have like a hip hop score and I have a DJ and they, they learned literacy through these plays. I was Miss Jeannie, you know, it was great. When you look at Shakespeare, I just brought it, harken back to this, the iambic pentameter that it's written in really lends itself really well to like a hip hop uh, musical. So like, if you think about Midsummer Night's Dream, like look at like Puck's speech, you know, it's like, if we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions didn't appear, right? It just, it just goes. So the kids would learn the whole thing. Whereas if you put a kid in a library and be like, memorize this Shakespearean speech. Yeah, no. So then they'd be like, Miss Jeannie, <laughs> what does this mean? What does that mean? I'm like, well, this is what this means. Yeah. Because it's like a different language, right? Shakespeare is like a different language. So I was doing this crazy production of Midsummer Night's Dream at the St. Patrick's Gym. And with all these like Dominican kids who were like amazing actors, like never trained, but they got it. They just got it. I, well, they weren't, around because it was like 9 30 at night but I, me and some other uh professionals who worked in new york were setting up the tech right so we were hanging lights and you know getting everything ready for the uh next day and we were out of like tape or something and i ran to the korean market down the block like a crazy woman gathered up all this tape and stuff in new york you can just find anything at any time of the night and i came running out of there and i crashed in the gym he was coming in probably after a gig or something and i was like oh hi how are you and he was like um i'm sorry do, do i know you and i'm like are you kidding and he's like no and he's like really i just am really bad with you know my glasses on or whatever and i'm like you're so arrogant i'm like i've known you for years we've talked and i like kind of let him have it i'm like you're arrogant like you're arrogant you got a lot of nerve and then he was like you know you and i are probably gonna get married wow <laughs> And I was like, yeah, in your wildest dreams. Wow. In your wildest dreams. And then it just kind of like that whole little fight, like mm -hmm. kind of endeared us to each other, right? And eventually I went out to lunch with him and, you know, it turned out he's from six kids and 
you know, and I was like, I've never seen you at church. And he's like, yeah, I've never, I've never been in that church. I'm like, it's across the street from your house. He's like, yeah, I hear the bells go off all the time. Yeah. I'm like, why aren't you in mass? And he's like, because it's too early. I'm like, they have a 1230 mass. He's like, yeah, that's too early. <laughs> Sunday. You know, so I'm like, come on, we're going to mass. She brings me to church every Sunday. If you've never been to a Catholic mass, that is the longest experience of your life. You know, so it was just kind of this fun courtship. And, and then we just started working together. You know, he got booked on a sitcom. You know, I was like, I'll break down these scenes with you. We'll work on the, the scenes. And that's when it became very clear that we were like really good at working together. And then I started, you know, producing his albums. Like I talked to Luigi's Doghouse is the first one to come back to that. Then we had five kids the next day. The next day, yeah. Here you go. So the two of you discover that you have this magic, right? Working together, collaborating. You guys have done seven stand-up comedy specials, correct? And you've been Grammy and Emmy Award nominated for all of your work. Which of these projects with Jim would you say you're the most proud of? First of all, when I look back, I don't want to like, I, I don't want to look back and say I'm not proud of anything, right? Because I'm, I'm really proud of everything. But like when I was doing, directing his specials or even with the Emmy nominated uh, Pale Force, which my brother, Paul, who's a cartoonist at The New Yorker, you know, was the creator of, with, and he and Jim were the, you know, creators, and I was not the creator of it, right? So the Emmy nomination was for something that wasn't mine, right? And my work with Jim and all the Grammy nominations, I mean, that's just, like, that's mostly Jim, right? I'm just the, you know, I'm, I'm humble about this, okay? I, like, Jim is a star, Right. I am a director and I'm a producer and I'm, I work really hard and I put these things together, but I don't want to steal his thunder at all. He is a genius. However, and even with the, uh, the two New York Times bestselling books that he wrote and I was a story editor on, it's still his point of view. The comedy, his point of view. Pale Force was my brother Paul Nolte's idea. The Jim Gaffigan show, however, was the most balanced collaboration that we ever had the Jim Gaffigan show was like Jim was in like every scene right he was the actor the star of the show and we did right together but I Jeannie Gaffigan was a character on the show the Catholic priest was a character on the show right so it was the most balanced uh symbiosis of the two of us creatively out of any of it uh, what I'm the most particularly proud of is the season finale of season two of the Jim Gaffigan show. It's called the Mike Gaffigan show. And it's all done when Jim was a child. And my son, Jack, who, by the way, is now 15 years old. So that's how time flies. And this is pre-brain tumor. Plays young Jim. And Jim plays his father. And the theme of the Mike Gaffigan show is fatherhood. And not only... Are there so many Easter eggs in that show? Like, if you are, like, a, a serious, like, nerd, comedy nerd and you are a big fan of, like, the Jim Gaffigan show, there are so many Easter eggs in that show. And there's personal Easter eggs that nobody would ever know. And if, for those of you who don't know what Easter egg is, when you plant little things that mean other things in the scene. So because it's about Jim's childhood, I had photographs of all the real Gaffigan kids 
in the show. And I and there was a certain point where all the actor kids who played the Gaffigan siblings with the same names as the Gaffigan siblings were on those like school pictures up the stairs. You know how people have them that like, going up the stairs, they're like, here's Billy and here's Johnny and here's Mary, and they're all in the school picture. So we had a school picture of, of actual Jim from like the 70s, right? And then we sat the rest of the actor kids in a mock school photo and put them up the stairs in the house. This is like a two second, but it took so long to do. It's a two second shot. But the only real photograph on that stair display is the real Jim. And then the rest of them are the actor kids, but it's staged as if it was all like picture day in the 70s. There's so many beautiful things that were so creative and um so fun to do and so meaningful and then plus having you know my son jack was the lead that was a really uh amazing time with him my daughter mari played her aunt pam in it and then all of my kids ended up being in like some of the flashback sequences so i'm super proud of that because it was a whole family thing it was completely collaboration and it took a really long time to do because when you are shooting block style, like it was a very, very difficult production schedule. Usually when one show is filming, you're prepping the next episode, which is usually why you have guest directors come in. So because I was on set being the showrunner, every single show of the whole season, I had to prep this show the entire season because it was like a vintage everything like everything was really from the 70s or you know it was a set in Jim's childhood and had a whole flashback sequence and it was pretty much what I'm the most proud of and I I hope all of you see it because it was really great yeah I okay I'm just gonna tell you right now I loved the Jim Gaffigan show I was so bummed it was only two seasons but I, I and I understand that you wanted to spend more time with your family at that point. But I'm like any time with my family at that point, because it got <laughs> it got really I mean, that was a schedule that was unmanageable. Unmanageable, because yeah. When you have two people in a marriage, uh-huh. you take turns, right? So like right now you're working outside of the home and your wife is working in the home and you got mm-hmm. a two year old, right? But imagine that you're both working and you don't have mama or abuela or a good person you know it's like it was too much i was like i can't at a certain point you're not going to be able to be honest because you're writing a show about your family and your experiences with your family but you're not with them anymore yeah i had this flash that i'm like if this continues my kids are gonna end up being raised by someone else and i'm literally making up stories about these wonderful beautiful things that created this show in the first place so yeah that is so true. That is so true. I'm, but I'm glad that you guys had that realization because I, I, I can imagine that would be difficult to walk away, basically. Well, I also have to say one more thing that's really important, too, uh-huh. is that if we haven't, I would not be having this conversation right now with you because literally I did not go to the doctor uh-huh. or take my kids to the doctor that entire time I was running that show. So even though we did like immediately we produced a show i don't know if you know if you're following the comedy specials we produced a show right after that show yeah we produced another show but i had more flexibility so when i took my kids to get their uh well child visits that's when 
my doctor, who is still my doctor now, noticed that I was having like hearing imbalance problems. And she, she, I was not even at the doctor for myself. I was with my kids for their visit. And she was like, I want you to get that checked out. And I was like, oh, it's fine. All right, so great conversation with Jeannie Gaffigan. Hope you all enjoyed that. Again, stay tuned next week, part two of that conversation. In our final segment here, Christina and I are going to share something that we've been reading or watching or listening to or what have you. What have you been listening to, babe? So for me, it's listening. Mm -hmm. I love Iration, as you know, mm -hmm. the band Iration. They're amazing. I might have talked about them before. Uh, but they had an album drop, I think it was July 2020, last year. And the title of the album is called Coasting. And they're like a Cali reggae rock band. And uh, this album, from like start to finish, is amazing. Chill. You can just listen to it. Driving down the coast, taking a drive, doing whatever. Mm -hmm. It's one of those albums that kind of like takes you away. And uh, yeah, I'm just digging it. I love it. It's so good. I was bummed because it's stupid COVID. But I wanted to see them at the Santa Barbara Bowl again. Because in 2019, we went to the Santa Barbara Bowl mm -hmm. and watched them close out their tour that year. That was for your birthday. That was for my birthday, yes. Uh, the band went to school in Santa Barbara. A lot of the members are from Hawaii. So it was really amazing for them to close out their show in Santa Barbara. And then for us to be there for it was just... Had a, had a little incident in the bathroom as we were leaving with uh, one of the concert goers. Uh, everyone's drinking and, you know, smoking the wacky today. There's always a line, especially in the women's bathroom, you know. And there's this one chick that was just blocking traffic, self-absorbed, in the mirror. And I'm like thinking to myself, as I'm leaving, she's not going to move. And she knows it. Like, she wants to make whoever walks by her say something to her. <laughs> so going back to my derby days, I kind of just walk by her and hip check her a little bit. And, uh, you know, I got some hips, so she moved, um, not by choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I left. And, you know, you and my brother and my sister was there. Yeah. We didn't leave fast enough because this chick came out and she was pissed. And so she proceeds to test me out <laughs> all this stuff. And, you know, I just totally deflect. I was like, you know, you're right. I'm so sorry. I, I totally bumped into you. That was my bad. You know, I'm, I'm kind of placating her. And I'm like, oh my God, like, I'm a mom now. I'm a mom and like, I'm at a concert and I'm like almost getting into fisty cuffs with like some 20 something like year old. Right. I cannot be doing this. <laughs> well, to be fair, that chick was pretty horrible. Yeah, she wasn't very nice, but... um Say lovey, say lovey. You got to keep your uh, derby skills sharp. I guess, yeah. But hopefully, you know, COVID's wrapped up. I think uh, concerts and concert venues are going to open back mm, up. I can't wait. So hopefully the Santa Barbara Bowl, which is one of the best places to see a show, 
will open up soon, and we will be able to watch Iration. Uh, they're on tour right now with 311. Yeah. I'm not big into the reggae music. Oh, God. Yeah. A reggae, a reggae, a reggae yeah. band. Reggae? Yeah, reggae. You know, I think I got a little contact high. <laughs> I mean, that's not surprising. But it was enjoyable. I enjoy being in the crowd. I like grooving to the music with you. So. Mm -hmm. Good times. That's good music. Yeah. I'm going to talk about this movie, Without Remorse. Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. It stars Michael B. Jordan, who you might know from films like Creed. He was Killmonger in the Black Panther movie. He's very hot right now. He's super hot right now. He's super hot. He's super hot right now. <laughs> uh, but this movie, which I thought was really cool, that they connected it to the Jack Ryan series. So yeah. they're in the same universe. This, you know, the Jack Ryan television show on Amazon. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. And we've talked about it on the podcast. Uh, it's in that universe. So, you know, while John Krasinski's out there, you know, Jim from The Office out there God, dude drop the gym from the office thing. like he's proven already that he is badass okay all right fine but dead dad from a quiet place oh is, God. <laughs> is in that show you're killing me without remorse though so michael b jordan he's part of this i don't know if it's a seal team yes but they're involved in covert operations and uh they they cross paths i believe they're russian Mm -hmm. Well, and the CIA. True. The CIA guy that uh, was kind of giving them their mission. Yes. So the whole movie basically kicks off with intruders in Michael B. Jordan's, not actually Michael B. Jordan's home, um, into, the <laughs> into the character's home. Nice recovery. Yeah. And they kill his wife, who's pregnant. And so they almost... Spoiler alerts. It's the beginning of the movie. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. His his pregnant wife may or may not survive the oh intrusion. <laughs> so, I'm sure our listeners are like, oh, this sounds lovely. It's a great movie. It's called Without Remorse for a reason. So okay. they killed his... They killed the man's wife. Okay. I'll and, give you that. And unborn child. And so he then is on, like, a mission to hunt down who those people are that did the invasion. And by the way, he was almost killed in that invasion, that home invasion. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy. He is, Michael B. Jordan is so good with acting. The physicality. Like a, the physicality. Yes. He's very physical. The the action shots, the shooting of the guns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, he's very intense. Not to, not to give too many spoilers, but there's a scene where he basically rams into a vehicle Sets it on fire, and while the car is on fire, he gets into it so he can interrogate uh, one of the suspects. Yeah. While the car is on fire. Yeah. It's pretty badass. It's pretty badass. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if you want to watch a badass action movie starring one of the hottest actors in multiple senses, one of the hottest actors. One of the hottest actors. One of the hottest one actors. The, the hottest actor right now. Who is the hottest actor right now? I don't know. Michael B. Jordan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Check out Tom Clancy's Without Remorse on Amazon Prime. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on our humble little podcast. You could do us a huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. 
such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find this show. And be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Conversation on Tap. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week. Cheers, babe. Cheers. Salud.